You're listening to Jesus is Everything, the teaching ministry of The Way, Eugene. All right, well, here we are, uh, Mark chapter 8, and this is right after, as we know, uh, you know, First Peter proclaims that Jesus is the Christ, and he's commended, and on this confession of Peter, the entire church is going to be built, that's how the church is going to be propagated, it's going to grow because of the confession that Jesus is the Christ, and then uh, Jesus goes into talking about how he's going to have to suffer many things. And then the disciples being disciples, meaning they're going to follow his example. Of course, that doesn't feel good. So Peter begins to rebuke Jesus and say, no, that can't be it. We don't want to suffer. And so you can't suffer. And Jesus turns to Peter and says, get behind me, Satan, for you're not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. We'll jump into verse 34 in just a second. But, but I think that needs to be one of our guiding principles. And I don't just mean in our study of Mark's accounting of the gospel, but I think that's one of those big sort of purpose statements, mission statements, guiding statements for us as followers of Jesus, as Christians. I think that's, that's the, one of the things that we can um, sort, of, sort of land on. The statement in verse 33, where he, he says to Peter, he's rebuking Peter, get behind me, Satan. But the reason he rebukes him, I think this has to be one of those correcting sort of missional statements for us as Christians. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. I'm not sure if there's like a clearer explanation for why our lives are messed up, why we have conflict, why we don't appreciate the things that God has given us, why we're not thankful, right? Like why we become jealous or covetous or like just dissatisfied with life. It's because our minds are on the things of man. The things that man says are valuable, are praiseworthy, are the status symbols, all of that stuff, rather than the things of God. Now, as we move forward in verse 34 through 37 and 38, I think we're going to see a further exposition of this. Jesus is going to begin talking about this in a way that that is, um, again, why I like Mark's gospel. It's very straightforward. There's not a whole lot of other stuff to get in the way of interpretation or storytelling. It's just like, boom, here's what Jesus said. Now deal with it. All right. So verse 34, uh, Mark 8, verse 34. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, if anyone would come after me, the meaning being, if anyone would follow after me and join me, me being your rabbi, the one that teaches you, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself. And take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? Meaning, what can he do to earn the right to have his soul? Verse 38, for whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. And then although chapter 9, verse 1, looks to be a break in the text, oftentimes the way that the editors broke things up wasn't actually just a, a real good decision as far as where the chapter break should have been. This actually is a part of the statement that Jesus is making, right? 
So he says, uh, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. And he said to them, truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste mm-hmm. death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. Now, as often is the case, um, what we've seen is the very end of the statement sort of becomes the, the topic sentence. When we're teaching literature or, or writing uh, in, in school, we try and get the topic sentence right at the top of the writing project, right? Whatever the essay is, the paragraph that you're going to write, the topic sentence is like, so that the reader knows what you're talking about, it starts right at the beginning, okay? And then you start offering supporting details that prove whatever your topic sentence is, right? Well, the way that the literature is structured here there's all this explanation, all these discussion points that Jesus gives, and then he gives this topic sentence at the very end. Everything that Jesus is talking about from verses 34 down through 9 verse 1 is talking about the kingdom of God. He's talking about the values of the kingdom, how the kingdom operates, how someone who's a part of the kingdom thinks versus someone who's a part of the kingdom of the world. He's contrasting the kingdom of the world, which is whose kingdom? Satan, that's exactly right. Satan is the ruler over this world right now. He's been given that opportunity by God. But God's kingdom, which Jesus is inaugurating, he's opening up to, opening the world up to, is his gospel. That's the good news, is God's kingdom come, okay? So let's go back up to verse 34 and let's just walk through this a little bit and then understanding that it's all in the context of the kingdom, now to start with this, like there's going to be some, some bold statements here that, that Jesus makes as he always does. But um, can anybody like agree with me on this one um, and perhaps even give a little bit of testimony to it that Jesus just completely messes up your life in the best possible way, I mean, <laughs> right? I know you were worried. You were worried for a little bit on what I was saying there. Nope, nope. Jesus. I know, you got to hear it correctly. But especially for someone who, especially for those of us, now this, this is for everybody, because some of us grew up in the church, we grew up as, as Christians in the sense of like, maybe we were at VBS as a little kiddo, and we heard about Jesus, we're like, yes, Jesus, you know, that's what I want to do. But there's always going to be some point in our life where Jesus really grabs us, perhaps in different seasons or different ways, where perhaps, we know it's not him, it's us, where we're more responsive, we're more willing to submit those kinds of things. Or perhaps if you have a story of, conversion to the faith of believing in Jesus later in life, we all, I would hope, have this understanding that our perception of things before submitting to Jesus's authority compared to how our life is like and our perception of things after Jesus, right, really gives us the indication that our lives just get totally upended when Jesus takes control. Things just, just aren't always the way that we think they should be. They're better in one sense. They're for our good. We know they're, they give us hope, right? In the things of, of what's to come, the promises of God. But man, following Jesus just, just in a lot of ways messes things up. It makes things harder in some ways, right? And I think that's a lot of what Jesus is going to be talking about here on how, man, it's not necessarily easy, but it's going to be better, right? And so, so again, let's go to verse 34. And Jesus calling the crowd to himself with his disciples. So he's had this time with his disciples. Now he's calling the crowds to him. Jesus at this point, of course, in his ministry has a lot of people interested in him. A lot of people are following after him. 
And he calls them. And remember now, remember that, that Peter's confession begin, uh, becomes for us sort of this dividing line on the first half of Mark's accounting of the gospel and second half. Remember how I said a lot of times it's considered the, um, the final exam, right? That it was Jesus' sort of final exam for Peter and the apostles or the disciples. Like, who do you say that I am? That's the big question, right? That's what we've been dancing around. Once you give me the right answer here, ah, now we're on the road to where we need to get to, which is ultimately Jesus' passion, his, his death and his resurrection, and the mission that Jesus sends the disciples out onto. So calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to the crowd, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Now, again, Jesus turns everything upside down. When Jesus is in control, when Jesus is in charge and we're submitting ourselves to him, he just messes everything up. And here's why. Because to claim the cross as something that someone should embrace, perhaps you've heard it said this way before, perhaps not. But for Jesus to say, hey, deny yourself. Okay, I get that, Jesus. I should be humble. And then to go a step further and say, and take up your cross is the same as if someone were to say right now, hey, Christian, you know, you should deny yourself, right? Be humble, deny yourself. Great, I'm working on that. I know that that's a good thing. But then embrace your electric chair. Embrace your lethal injection, right? Embrace the noose. That sounds grotesque, but this is the imagery that a Jew having heard this, this Roman torture implement, this Roman implement of capital punishment, the cross, this is how the hearers in that day would have heard what Jesus is saying, right? It wasn't just, oh, take up your cross with the image of Jesus being the one bearing our cross. See, because we, we get that opportunity, right? We see history through that lens of like, ah, take up your cross. Jesus is going to be the example. He's going to go to the cross for us. So obviously he means it metaphorically. It's just a spiritual taking up our cross. The people at that time are hearing Jesus and he's saying, if you really want to come after me, deny yourself take up this implement of torture and destruction and murder and then follow after me, right? Now, it doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense to say, take up your cross, take up an implement of torture and follow me. In the ears of the followers of Jesus, remember, we sort of upended the story itself because we went to Palm Sunday, right? And we listened to the, the, the uh, entering into Jerusalem, right? We, we read about that story and them saying that Jesus is the king and all these kinds of things, welcome, welcoming him into Jerusalem. But before that, they're seeing Jesus. And again, their impression is that, that this is the one. This is the guy that's going to come and he's going to renew Israel. He's going to lead us on a new exodus. He's going to kick out the Romans and we're going to win. And we who are zealots are going to be able to, you know, take over the government and all of the, you know, financial control and all these kinds of things. They were expecting to be able to follow a certain train of thought that would be similar to how we would say, eat, drink and be merry, right? Eat, drink and be merry for tomorrow we die. If we have all the things that we want and we get to enjoy them ah, tomorrow, no big deal. That would be the, the human way of thinking. Jesus is upending that. He's turning it around and going, no, actually, you're supposed to deny yourself to be a part of my kingdom. And you're actually supposed to be willing to take the thing that is most 
precious to you, which would be your own life, and you're supposed to sacrifice it. Now, to take up your cross, that phrase, I want you to get that phrase in your ears, take up your cross, um, to take up and lift up the cross for yourself has the implication of presenting a sacrifice to the Lord, okay? Knowing that the cross is an implement of death, the cross in and of itself for you to take it up is as if to say, Lord, I'm putting myself to, forward to be sacrificed. I'm sacrificing myself for your purposes. Now, for Jesus to say, take up your cross, first it has this image of this sacrifice being offered to the Lord, and then to take up the cross as the implement of, of self-sacrifice, it means, check this out, to deny oneself with lethal determination. I love that phrase. Lethal determination. And the whole conception is of picking up and carrying that wooden beam that was the cross beam that got nailed to a tree to be executed upon, right? Lethal determination. Lord, I don't want to sin anymore, okay? Well, what are you doing to, to make sure that you don't sin anymore? Well, I'm, I'm making my best effort. Are your efforts lethal? Are they killing the sin? Are they destroying the part of you <laughs> that keeps returning to sin? Okay, if not, then we have to ask ourselves the question, have we actually taken up our cross at that point? Or do we keep returning to that sin again and again, like a dog returns to its vomit, right? Like, like do we have this lethal determination to say, man, I want, I want the world out of me and I want Jesus in me, right? This is the big question, I think, as, as we look at that phrase. Now, it continues on, of course. Jesus says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Offensive language to the Jews who heard it, they would have been shocked at this. But then he goes on, explains in verse 35, for whoever would save his life will lose it. Now watch the contrast. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. There's a difference in the contrast that Jesus is making here. If you save your life, meaning if you save your life for your own purposes, if you're just saving your life because it's yours and you're selfish about it and you want to do what you want to do and you want to have as much pleasure as possible and you don't want to be accountable to anybody else and that's all you're doing is saving your life for your sake, you don't really have any purpose in life at that point. You're not saving your life for anything valuable, so ultimately it's going to be wasted. You're going to lose it, right? I hate to keep making these... these, these uh, uh, analogies or comparisons or using this example, but it's my life. I go to school every day. And so I've got these students and I've got these freshmen who um, they're challenged academically. That's my job is to work with kids who have trouble academically. And that's, and that's fine. But I've told them from the very beginning, you have this opportunity. I'm here to help. You have this opportunity. We're giving you time to get assignments in. We're modifying things. We're changing assignments to make it easier for you. All this kind of stuff. I'm saying like, don't waste this opportunity, right? And yet there's kids who are still refusing to turn in assignments, refusing to do the work, skipping class. And they've had this entire freshman year, their ninth grade year. And what do they have to show for it? Zeros. Fs across the board. And I'm, I'm honest. Like I, I, Maybe I get fired for this. I don't know. But I look at them and I tell them, you have wasted your freshman year of high school. Like, you, like a year of your life. Granted, you're 15, so you don't have much perspective on it. But you have wasted a year of your life. You have nothing to show for this year's worth of attendance at high school. And you're like, well, that doesn't mean I can't be successful. I said, you're right. 
But this that you've experienced right now, you've wasted it, right? You showed up, you did what you wanted to do, you hung out with your friends. There's a really funny phenomenon. There's these kids that walk around school all day. They literally just skip class and and they just walk around campus and find different places to hide, those kinds of things. And so we can't get them to go to class. But 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 305, the bell rings. Technically, they're out. They can leave, right? Everybody's leaving. We can't get them to leave either. They stay until like 4.30 and just hang out at the school. And it's tragic. They don't have homes to go to oftentimes and these kinds of things. And I'm not trying to, you know, mock them. But it's the funniest phenomenon. It's like, you're here. You won't go to class. School's out. You won't leave. And it's just the oddest deal. But the same way that those kiddos have wasted that time with nothing to show for it, Jesus is saying the same thing. If you're just trying to save your life, do what you want with it, you're ultimately going to lose it. It's not worth anything. Contrast that with the second half of verse 35. But whoever loses his life, this idea of sacrificing his own life, taking the cross and putting him on the cross, whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. Twofold purpose. If you're losing your life just to be magnanimous, if you're sacrificing your life just to somehow be a, a stand-up guy or an upright person or to be, you know, you know, uh, you know, sacrificial for the sake of being sacrificial, again, nothing. But if you lose your life, meaning surrender your life, sacrifice your life, for my sake, Jesus says, if you do it on my behalf, for me and the gospels, then you're actually going to save your life. This is where a lot of Christians mess up. A lot of Christians not naming names or, ju- or ju- judging this kind of stuff necessarily, but a lot of churches, right? Their entire goal is to get people to say, I believe in Jesus. And that's where the ministry ends, right? Like that's it. They're missing the boat entirely. And they're missing what Jesus says here. It's not just for Jesus's sake that you sacrifice your life. It's twofold. It's for Jesus's sake that you sacrifice your life and the gospels. See, I, I'm convicted more and more that you, to, to fully realize and experience the life that God desires for us, what he has called us to and prepared us for, and, and what he has given to us in Jesus, is not just salvation. It's not just this like, yay, I get to go to heaven, I'm not going to hell. That's a part of it. But the other part that goes along with that hand in hand is that missional purpose that says, no, we have this gospel. We have this precious gift, right? And Paul talks about it, it's like this precious gift gift in jars of clay and all these kinds of things, right? The salvation that we have that's so special, but it's not for us just to hold on to, it's to be shared. It's to be pushed forward. It's to be told and proclaimed to other people. And when we do those two things, when we sacrifice our life, surrender ourselves for Jesus's sake and the gospel, that's when our life actually begins to have value. Now, I get that that's a hard statement because then we start adding in all of the qualifiers, right? That's not my personality. I'm not good at talking to people. I don't know enough about the gospel. All those kinds of things, right? We have all those qualifiers that we start to make. And, and in, a, in an ungracious way, I, again, I'm not trying to be judgmental of those things, but those are just excuses. Everybody has the same limitations. Everybody has the same fears. Everybody has the same restrictions. It, it's, it's about obedience, it's about, it's about actually surrendering yourself, surrendering yourself to Jesus, okay? And when we do that for his sake and for the gospel, that's when we actually save our lives. And that's when we actually receive 
um, the, the gain that God intends for us. And so we see in verse 36, continue on, Jesus asked this rhetorical question. He's not asking them for an answer. He's saying, you know the answer just by me asking the question. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? You could be Elon Musk and buy Twitter for $40 billion. But if you're doing that simply to promote free speech and there's no actual purpose to what you're doing, there's no value to it, you're not using the platform to promote Jesus and salvation and reconciliation with God, our creator, okay, (laughs) someone with more money who comes after you is going to buy it next, right? It doesn't actually value anything. It doesn't actually, uh, it doesn't actually gain you anything. In fact, by doing that, oftentimes you forfeit your own soul because you're so uh, focused on getting what the world has to offer. And then in verse 37, he asked the question a different way. For what can a man give in return for his soul? Meaning when you see the value of your soul, when you see how important it is, how God has placed his breath in you, and you have this awareness and this consciousness and this understanding of of life, when you see the value of it, what do you have that you could actually trade for it? How valuable that is, the breath of God in you, the life that we have, how important and valuable that is. Do we have anything that, that is of equal value or greater value and purchase our soul for ourselves? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. There's nothing more important than the soul of a person. This is a part of Jesus establishing his church, right? He's heard Peter's confession. He says, that's how the church is going to grow. Now, everybody listen up. This is the important thing. People's souls. Like that's the most important thing. My message of this kingdom that's coming, the kingdom doesn't exist unless there's people in it. For people to enter into my kingdom, their soul has to be redeemed. Their soul has to be, has to be surrendered When I purchase it, they have to give it over willingly, right? Like that's the exchange that takes place. This is an evangelistic section of scripture. This is is encouragement for Jesus' followers. Whoever's choosing to follow Jesus, hey, here it is. He's really honest. It's not necessarily going to be easy. I'm going to say shocking things like you might actually have to lose your life. Yep, that's going to be figurative for some. It's definitely going to be spiritual for everybody. But maybe it's even going to be physical for some. You might actually have to lose your life. But if you do it for my sake and for the sake of the gospel, you've got everything. You are gaining everything that God intends. I was listening to a report today. We here in America, we sort of lament the state of the church. And rightfully so in America. America is mm-hmm. a, a pretty pretty corrupt place morally and spiritually. Uh, Christianity church attendance is on the decline, has been for the better part of 65 years. Um, Christianity is becoming this thing in North America that looks as though it's progressively progressively going to be um, outlawed as hate speech and all these kind of garbage things that we're looking at politically. Um, the push for acceptance of transgenderism and homosexual relationships. I mean, it, it's hard to imagine how much further that stuff can go, but just buckle up. It's going to get worse. Like that's going to be even pushed further. And anybody who opposes that at all or has even a difference of opinion, however you want to say it, you're going to be vilified. Like you're going to be the villain and you are going to be slammed for having a conservative view. But here's the thing that I find we can have encouragement in because because this is not a view that we have. We're so ethnocentric. We're American-centric. We just see the world through uh, America's eyes, right? Side note, sorry to get distracted. I saw this meme today also that said, um, 
how we view the world from outer space. And it's like, you see all the countries and all the colors and all those kinds of things. Right. But then the next image says how aliens see the world from outer space. Um, and they just see America, right? Because that's the only place aliens ever land or in America, right? That's all right. And every movie about aliens invading the planet, they don't go to Russia. They go to America, right? Like, so we're so ethnocentric. We're so American centric. And so we look at the state of the church and we're just like, oh man, the church, it's just going downhill and there's less people, all those kinds of things. Actually, do you realize that right now across the world, there's uh, right now over 2 billion Christians on the planet. And the best estimates right now are that in the next 20 years, it's going to be 2.6 billion, 2.6 billion Christians. Christianity is actually on the rise globally where it's growing is in the far East, in the Asian countries. It's growing exponentially in the Southern Hemisphere, in Latin America, right? And it's growing, praise the Lord, in the Middle East, Mm. right? So Christianity as a whole, oftentimes, again, like I say, from our perspective, culturally, we can get really discouraged and be like, okay, Jesus, I know you're telling us to be be evangelists, but like nobody's coming. Yeah, but here's the deal. Yes, they are. They're coming in droves. They're coming by the millions. It's just maybe not in our backyard, but what that should tell us that Christianity is actually still growing in the world is that it's still relevant. It's still true. It's still changing people's lives. And that means in our communication with people, maybe it's not going to be on the same scale as it was when Billy Graham was preaching in the 40s and 50s. Maybe not. But it's still effective. And those whom God calls, the way that he does it, he uses you and me to share the gospel with people. Yeah? And that's, that's where we can take Jesus's words and go, all right, then that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to, for the sake of Jesus, for the sake of his kingdom and the gospel, I'm going to go out and I'm going to lose my life for the sake of the gospel. I'm going to give up my thing. I'm going to give up my pride. I'm going to give up my opinions. I'm going to give up my selfishness. I'm going to give up the things that I think are valuable because the world says they're valuable. And I'm going to think through things in light of Jesus and his kingdom. Now, look at verse 38. Jesus makes this next statement in reference to an adulterous and sinful generation. If Jesus is calling greater Judea sinful and adulterous uh, 2,000 years ago, (laughs) how much more so is he speaking to the generation that we live in currently? Verse 38 says, for whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation of him, will the son of man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his father with the holy angels. I'm telling you, there is, there is, when you stop and meditate on Jesus's words and you take them again, verse by verse, you read them slowly. There's a lot of things that should cause our knees to start shaking. There's a lot of scripture that is encouraging and should build us up in our faith. There's a lot of scripture that should also cause us to pause, to stop dead in our tracks and go, where am I on this continuum? Where am I on this scale? Am I embarrassed of Jesus? Do I, do I not put him first in my thought process? Do I not advocate for my opportunity to, to build relationships so that I can share about my faith? Or, or am I bold in those things? Do I just live that out? Is it a part of my speech? Is it how I talk to people? Is it what I consider when I build relationships? How can I share my faith? And, and this is a crude way of saying it. And, and I, I don't know how, how else to describe it, but like 
Jesus is saying, if in the midst of this adulterous generation, right, this adulterous and sinful generation, meaning if you're seeking after those things, if you're seeking after sin, if you're seeking after adulterous behavior, behavior that is unfaithful, right? He goes, if, if you're ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, you see the contrast? If, if you would rather pursue the things of this world, which is adulterous and sinful, rather than me and my words, right? If you're choosing those things versus me, then when I come back, I won't choose you either. You're saying I don't want you. By your behavior, by your actions, by the things that you choose to do, that I choose to do, that deny Christ, that, it, or that act like I'm ashamed of Jesus and what he accomplished for me. This is, again, a crude way of saying it. I don't know how to say it. Turnabout's fair play. <laughs> if we're going to sit there and spit in Jesus' face, right? When he comes back, why would we expect that somehow, but God is love. And what about grace? You just told him you don't want him. By choosing after those things and giving your life over to sinful things, you're telling Jesus, I don't want you, or I don't need you, or I don't think that your sacrifice was worthy enough for me to give up my minute of pleasure, right? And so if that's the case, God, as I've always heard him describe, the perfect gentleman will absolutely give you what you want. If you want to go after the things of the world and deny Jesus with your behavior, Regardless of what you say you believe, if the fruit that you show doesn't, doesn't promote the Lord, then God will say, okay, you've made your choice. But the opposite is true as well. If we choose to sacrifice, to lose our life for the sake of Christ and the sake of his gospel, when he returns, then we get to experience that joyful, beautiful reunion of, here's my people, I've come for you. Come on, let's be together forever. Like that's the joy of the Lord. Entering into the joy of the Lord is, is having this life that is with Jesus eternally apart from sin, apart from the destruction of what the world chooses to do. Now, to finish out this section of scripture, verse one, chapter nine, verse one, it says, and he said to them, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. This is one of those verses that causes a lot of, um, a lot of debate and discussion about what Jesus means here. And there's several thoughts or several ideas about what Jesus could be referring to. And again, he's saying, there are some of you standing here. So whoever is here listening to what Jesus is saying, there are some standing here who will not taste death, meaning they will not have died. They will be alive when they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. Um, now, some of the ideas are like this. It could be declare, it could be, this could be a, a declaration that Jesus has arrived to rule the world, okay? Some might be thinking, well, if, if, if what he's saying is that we're not gonna die until we see the kingdom of God has come with power, that means Jesus has arrived to be the king. Hence, how excited they were on Palm Sunday to welcome Jesus into Jerusalem. Our king's arrived. He's here. But this doesn't work. That explanation doesn't work because we've already heard Jesus talk about how he must die and rise from the grave. And again, I don't know what I would have thought when, if I was there. If I was one of the disciples, I'm not sure what I would have thought. 
obviously these are guys that God uses to, to turn the world upside down with the gospel after Jesus ascends to heaven. But they're with Jesus and they're still not getting it, that he's going to die and rise up from the grave. But they're thinking, no, he's come back. So that was one school of thought. Yeah, another school of thought would have been this. In the very next scene, starting in verse two, we hear what's called, uh, we see what's called the transfiguration, where Jesus goes up to the mountain and we see Moses and Elijah. We see Jesus illuminated like he's transfigured. We see him in his glorified state. We'll get to that on Sunday. It's a great, beautiful story. Um, but some believe that that's what this is in reference to, that um, that's the inauguration of the kingdom or that, that Peter, James, and John were getting a view of what the kingdom was going to be like, this glorified state. But that doesn't square with Jesus's language either about some of them not dying until they see the kingdom because that scene, the transfiguration, takes place six days later. It's pretty dramatic language but of Jesus saying, some of you aren't even going to die in six days before the kingdom comes in power, right? That doesn't, that doesn't square either, really, for, for the way that Jesus describes it. What I think is the most likely that Jesus is referring to when he says, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come in power. I think it's, it's most likely an explanation of the institution of the church on the day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit comes. Because what does the Holy Spirit do to God's disciples? It empowers them to go out and fulfill the mission that Jesus gave to them, right? Jesus breathes on the disciples in John 20 in the upper room and gives them authority, right? But then in Acts chapter two, on the day of Pentecost, we see God pour out the Holy Spirit on the entirety of the church, not just the apostles, but all of the church members, right? To be filled with the Holy Spirit and to go and do the work of mission that Jesus sent. I believe that's the best explanation because the other part of that, that would make sense here. He's got all of his disciples with him and he says, some of you or some here will not taste death. Was there a disciple who tasted death before the day of Pentecost? Yep, Judas. Judas would have been here a part of the 12, yeah? And prior to the church being established and the Holy Spirit given, Judas would have betrayed Jesus and he would have gone out and hung himself, right? So Judas would be dead. The rest of them would be alive and witness and see the coming of the kingdom in power, right? The kingdom's established in in uh, theory, in practicality, right? Even theologically, the kingdom is established by Jesus in his teaching and all of these things and the authority that he gives to the apostles. It's established in power when the Holy Spirit comes. And I think that's a huge lesson. I think it's incredibly important for us to remember that apart from the Lord, we can do nothing. Any idea we have, any conception we have of how we're gonna help God accomplish the mission of the gospel, apart from the inspiration, filling, the guidance of the Holy Spirit, we can't get anything done. The Holy Spirit really is the key. You know, when we pray, um, one of the reasons that I've begun to be very sort of formal in sort of my, in how I pray and to say in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, we have to have an understanding that God in his trifold, in his Trinity and his trifold power, man, we have a relationship with each part of the Godhead. It's important to understand and it's important to invest in each relationship. It's God, all one God, but each person, God the Father, and the honor and the respect and the, and the glory that we give God the Father is the creator, the one who's over all things. Jesus, our brother in the faith, right? 
and, and the one whom we just are, are we we are thankful for and we worship for his sacrifice, right? Jesus, our brother, but then also the Holy Spirit, the Comforter, and I think that's one where you know one of two things typically happens: the Holy Spirit is often misunderstood and overemphasized in terms of attributes of the Holy Spirit, or absolutely disregarded as a part of the Godhead. And, and it can't be one or the other. It has to be right in the middle there. We need to know who the Holy Spirit is. We need to acknowledge the, the, the way that the Holy Spirit moves and operates, which Paul gives us great teaching on in 1 Corinthians and Romans. But we also need, need to keep that in line with a balanced view of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. It's an important thing to have a relationship with each part of the Godhead. Now, one last thing. Remember the disciples, at the very least Peter, but we know several others as well, they were zealots for, for, for Israel. They were zealous for the nation of Israel and zealous for God in that sense. And they would fall in line with the zealots of that day, looking for the political, militaristic overthrow of the Romans and the reconstitution of the Jewish state as the dominant force in the region. And yet Jesus' arrival his ministry, and then subsequently his passion, right? His, sac- his own sacrificial death and then his resurrection. It didn't look like what the disciples were expecting. And so too with the kingdom of, of God that comes in power, right? We learn about the kingdom from Jesus. He's been teaching us all along about the kingdom and what the kingdom is like. It's about denying yourself. It's about serving others. It's about little kids and their faith. It's, it's not about power. It's not about having two swords. It's having just the one, right? Like, like it's not about collecting value to yourself. It's about giving your last dime, right? Like all these things Jesus is teaching all along the way, the values and the way that the kingdom works. But when the kingdom comes in power, the word power here, and I'm not a Greek scholar, but, but the word is dynamis, right? That's the Greek word for power, dynamis, where you can see where we get our word dynamic. That's where it comes from. And here's what it means. When we talk about the kingdom of God coming in power, it means an influence over reality in a supernatural manner. We cannot win souls. We cannot convert people. We cannot grow the church simply because we have solid theology. That's important and we need to pursue that and have that. We can't have a church growing and people coming to know the Lord and rejoicing in those things and going on mission for Jesus simply because we have our ducks in a row and our services on time and we have a kid's ministry and the worship sounds good. And like, like it can't be all of that tactile, like, like human stuff. The kingdom is only built through power, which is this supernatural manner. Without the Holy Spirit inspiring, leading, guiding, correcting everything that we're doing and our sensitivity to the voice of the Holy Spirit, nothing's going to get accomplished. Nothing's going to get accomplished. With the Holy Spirit leading us, guiding us, revealing to us truth, inspiring us to know where we're supposed to move, who we're supposed to talk to, how we're supposed to act, all of those things. Like when that takes place, the supernatural part of our faith that's when the kingdom really begins to grow. That's when the kingdom really comes with this type of power. There's a lot more we could say. There's another study that I think would be important for us to do that we could do perhaps at another time. But I would encourage you to to do this study for yourself. Read Matthew chapter 13 and look at 
um, what the values of the kingdom of God are. That's an interesting study. And it's one that, again, contrasts our reality, what we live in versus what God is calling us to in, in, a, pretty, um, in, a, in a pretty distinct way. The value of the kingdom and then as well, how the kingdom spreads. And that Matthew 13 is all those little parables that Jesus tells about a mustard seed, about uh, a pearl of great price, right? About a fishnet being gathered in, those kinds of things. All of those have to do with uh, how the kingdom operates and, uh, and how the kingdom grows. One last scripture I wanted to share with you in regard to the kingdom. Paul's words out of Romans chapter 14. Romans chapter 14 Verse 16 says this, So do not let what you regard as good be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So then, let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. These should be values that, that we hold to and cling to and promote. That like this is, this is what we should be promoting, what we should be looking to, is for there to be peace among God's people and mutual encouragement, mutual upbuilding. Not letting our own personal, uh, our, our personal opinions and our personal thoughts that we hold for ourselves, which is fine, get in the way and cause us to be judging other people, right? For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Again, the Holy Spirit's central to how God builds his kingdom and the values of the kingdom there. So my hope is we can be encouraged in that and in seeing Jesus and how he speaks to his disciples, but also to the crowds. We see how much Jesus messes with our lives, (laughs) how he turns things upside down, how the values that he gives to us and what he draws us to are so different than the values of the world, but how we should be thankful for that and how we should embrace them and pursue them with the power that the Holy Spirit brings so that God's kingdom can truly come.